You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. We are definitely living in challenging times and all around the world, people are heeding the call to stay at home, maintain physical distance and wear face masks when out in public so that we can all keep our fellow human beings safe. Like many sectors of society, the arts around the globe have been decimated When I speak to people in Auckland, Sydney, Berlin, Cape Town, London, and so many other places I visited in my One World Same Boat show, the arts, from bookstores to arenas and art fairs to musicals, are all shuttered. Millions of actors, musicians, and arts personnel are out of work. Of course, we are not the only sector affected, but we are a sector where unanimously around the planet We are profoundly concerned for our fellow humans, where we fully respect science, the medical profession, and public health officials. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised that there are some, even in our own thoughtful, kind, arts-loving community, who would rather put business ahead of health. I am proud to say that none of them are arts organisations. Yes, of course, we are all desperate to arrive at this destination of the new normal, but not at the cost of other people's health, and not until our incredibly hard-working public health director tells us that it is safe. As I visited with Ragtech Cinema, the Columbia Art League, the Missouri Symphony Orchestra, Skylark Bookshop, and Talking Horse Productions today, I was so grateful and thankful that each one put safety and the health of their staff and patrons before their own budgets. Thanks to dedicated health officials, caring and compliant citizens, We have managed to keep Boone County safe, and I have total faith that those people who manage our arts organisations, as well as many other small businesses who put health before profit, will continue to put us first. And to them, I say thank you. So, first stop today is my weekly get-together with Ragtag Cinema's director, Barbie Banks, to find out what is happening in the world of film. Hello, Barbie. Hi, how are you? So the world is changing once again this week as the stay-at-home mandate is lifted in Missouri and to some extent in Columbia. But most venues are making their own decisions based on how their staff and customers feel. So what conversations have you had with Regtag staff about what feels right for you? You know, we I've been polling all of them. You know, we have kind of people who are full-time, people who are part-time, and everybody feels very excited to come back to work, but wants to wait a little longer to, um, you know, interact so much with the public. And and honestly, with the, the new order, as an entertainment place, they've asked us to stay closed a little longer, which we are fine doing. We trust the the health department and want to do what's best for our community. So we're going to hold off on opening a little bit longer, probably open at the beginning of June with some limited capacity in our theater, which is, um, it's hard to have to wait longer, but I think it's the right thing to do at this point. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, what does disinfecting a cinema look like? Is it going in and spraying it after each show? What are, what are the plans? Have you got plans in, in place for that already? So we'll put up plexiglass around our box office, which is sad because it's a beautiful piece of art, but it'll be temporary. And then um, in between each screening, we already kind of wiped down everything to remove the food and drink, but now we'll do a little bit more cleaning of any of the spots that people can touch. So handrails and seats. And then we met with a, I met with a HVAC consultant to talk about our systems and how do we, you know, make it safe for everybody. And the best thing to do that they're recommending is just open all the doors after every screening and let it air out. So that's what we'll be doing. I imagine in the future, we'll have some fancy machine that like goes in and UV lights for a minute to kill everything, but we don't have that just yet. And then, I mean, obviously, it's not only you in that location. You've got Uprise as well. So it, what are they doing? Yeah, so they, they're actually going to open this month. They're going to start with some curbside pickup, and then after Memorial Day, we'll be up and running. And, you know, I feel like food places have always been on top of their game when it comes to making sure people are safe. And so they're just increasing the number of people who are there to help clean, spacing seats apart. And then we have a, you know, like communal water station and that kind of stuff that we will not have up and running for a little while longer. And so they're also, I was just talking to some people from Uprise and they're ready to come back to, we have, because we are a food location that serves alcohol, our bar will also be up and running. We just won't have, um, you can't just plop down at the bar and continue drinking all night. You have to get your drink and walk away to a table. So it'll look a little different for a while, but we're ready to like get our community space back and up and running. Cause I feel like Ragtag and Uprise and Hit Records are so much more than the businesses that we are. It is a place of culture and great conversations that happen there. And that's what we really want to be able to start doing again in June and July. In terms of the cinemas, are you going to reduce capacity and have people sitting like two seats apart? Yeah, we our operations director, Corey, made this amazing six foot piece of old poster board that we had of a cutout of a movie. And we have marked off what seats we can use in the theaters. So it li- limits our capacity a lot. But um, we'll, if this, the orders that we assume will come down in June will be, we can have people 50 or more in our theater, but have to be six feet apart. And so it only really fits about 38 when everybody's six feet apart. And then um, I want to get some branded measuring tape so everybody can carry those with them (laughs) and find their six feet apart within the theater. So yeah, it'll be limited capacity. And, you know, there's not a ton of films that are new that are coming out until August or September. So for the next couple months, we'll be showing retrospective films. And so I think it's going to feel like very special engagements. If you get one of those tickets for the limited capacity to see, you know, singing in the rain on the big screen, it'll just feel that much more special and exciting. Does that affect your uh, revenue streams significantly? Yeah, greatly. You know, uh, Wes Anderson has a new film coming out and that was supposed to be in July. And so when we have a Wes Anderson film, it makes our whole summer typically. And now we have to readjust. So yeah, we're looking at about only making 25% of what we had planned to make. And so that will affect, you know, our employees and the number of hours they get. But luckily, our community is 
loves what we do and we love them. And they, we had a great giving Tuesday this week um, with people supporting us that will allow us to not take too big of a hit with our employees, even if our revenue is a little down. So one of the conversations that has been dominating media coverage of the film industry for the last week or so is the spat between the AMC movie theater chain and Universal Studios. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, Universal, they put out Trolls 2, which is the animated Trolls, not the horror film Trolls, um, with Justin Timberlake. (laughs) They put it out video on demand and it did really well. And so Universal has said that when they release films from now on, they will also be doing video on demand. I think first they said, we're just going to release them, you know, on demand. And then AMC said, well, then we're never going to show another one of your films in our theater. And AMC is a huge, you know, movie theater company. And whenever a new Marvel film comes out, they make millions of dollars by showing it at AMC. And so AMC pulled the trump card and said we're not going to show any of your films then and so universal kind of backtracked and said well maybe we will do video on demand and in the theater and amc stood their ground and said well we're still not going to show them so i'm am proud of them i feel like we we get the appeal of being in your living room watching a movie but movies are made to be seen on a big screen with surround sound and i think they're supposed to be seen in a communal space where you can feel everybody's excitement and energy. And so, and as a little theater that we are, we need these big heavy hitters to be able to stand up and say, no, we're not going to play this game with you. And so it's been interesting to watch. And, you know, there is a big uh, lobbying company that fights for theaters and they've been in on that action saying, here's what we need from our government to make sure that movies are seen the way that we want them to be seen. And, So I do think this pandemic is going to change things a lot. I think we'll see a lot more films on demand coming out right away. But I hope that the studios still see the value in a movie theater. It seems like they're saying, well, the the second tier movies, we may release at the same time, but the big blockbusters, we are still going to put out to cinema release first. But how does all of that affect art house cinemas like Ragtag? Well, so whenever big films like the Marvel ones make a ton of money, then those companies can support art our independent films a little bit more because they they cost the same amount of money to make. They just don't bring in as much. And so if those top tiered films stop making money, then the independent films will not be getting, will not be being made by those, you know, by Warner Brothers and Samuel Goodwin and that kind of stuff. And so we need those heavy hitters to happen to make the smaller films successful for us. And we will, you know, there's always going to be very independent filmmakers making films, but a film like Little Women is considered an independent film and we want those ones to be able to be made so we can show them at our theater. Another thing that's coming up a lot right now is the return of the drive-in theater. Um, Back in the late 1950s, there were over 4,000 drive-ins across America. And today, amazingly, there are still over 300, which I think is kind of amazing. That's, you know, six per state. So it's many years since Columbia lost its sky-high drive-in, which is now a student housing village. (laughs) Is there a ragtag drive-in in the future? I think so. So this year is our 20th birthday this summer. And so typically we have a small party in our theater with ice cream sandwiches from Sparky's and a funny movie that we normally wouldn't show, but we show it for our birthday. And so we have in August and we're still finalizing the location and date, 
plans to do a one night drive in where we show the film that opened up Ragtag, which is Waiting for Guffman. Where would you do it? <laughs> we don't know yet. We have two locations that we're scouting actually today with our tech crew out at Les Bourgeois Winery. They have multiple spots that they think would work. And, you know, we do our boondoddle out there, which is the outdoor screening where people sit on blankets. So they're a great partner with us already, but we would need to do it in a different spot. So they're helping us scout that. And then um, there's several giant parking lots that are in Cosmo Park, which are usually filled in the summer with cars for baseball and softball tournaments that are not happening this year. And so we're looking at those spots too to work with the city on turning them into a drive-in. It's going to happen. We're still, you know, we're like usually want a whole year's lead time to plan something this big, but we're going to make it happen in a couple months. So <laughs> that's how Ragtag does it. <laughs> Good job, Ragtag. Yeah. It's fun being small and nimble sometimes. Exactly. Um, you mentioned Boondoddle. Is that still going ahead at the moment? We don't know. It looks like it will be canceled. We haven't made that official call yet, but if we have it, it'll be much, much smaller. You know, usually we attract about 500 people to that. And um, with the orders that the county is putting out, we're thinking we would only be able to have about 100 to 200 people at that time, which cost-wise might not work out. So no plans just yet. Keep it on your calendar, but maybe next week I'll have a full update on what's happening with the Boondoddle. Perfect. Well, we will check back in with you again next week, Barbie. Yeah. Thank you so much Thank for you. keeping film alive. Yes, and thanks, Columbia. <laughs> I mean, like I said, our Giving Tuesday was so successful, and I just think our town really believes in what we're doing, so we thank them a, a lot. Awesome. I'll see you next week, Barbie. Bye. Bye. Next stop today is to the effervescently engaged development director of the Missouri Symphony Orchestra, Monica Palmer, who I think has done more to change my relationship with classical composers than anyone ever. Good morning, Monica. I missed you last week. I missed the scandalous histories and naughty <laughs> intrigues of people most of us think of as dusty old men. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. I, you have to have your, your kind of weekly dose of the bad boys of classical music. So, you know, <laughs> so I, we'll get to the bad girls, too, because there were some of those as well. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, that's good to know that there were some bad girls, too. Now, I know there are a lot of online things coming up with the Missouri Symphony Orchestra. Plus, you had some big announcements last week. But my first question is, what are your what is your thinking as an organization about the right time to be together again in a physical space? Because this week things have changed in the state of Missouri and a little bit locally. I'm wondering what your thinking is as a board. Well, I mean, our board, you know, is made up of individuals who all have individual opinions. And I, of course, have another, yet another individual opinion. And so I was a little shocked when I saw, you know, that concerts were fine as long as social distancing rules applied and that kind of thing, which, you know, I guess with the Missouri Theater, with a 1500 seat theater, it's possible to get a decent sized audience still in there. But one, we don't own the building anymore. The university owns it. So we're kind of at their mercy about when we can continue any semblance of live performance and gathering all together. But then also, you know, we've just been talking and listening uh, to our membership and our patrons and, and kind of gauging how they feel about it. And there's still a lot of unease about the whole thing. You know, there's just the general sense of, well, until there's a vaccine or until there's immunity, you know, like, how can we safely do this? You know, music is wonderful. And it's, it's the most amazing thing to enjoy in a room together. But until we can do that safely, we have to be careful. 
So, yeah. So it was, it was very disappointing to have to announce last Friday that uh, we had made the very difficult decision to cancel our hot summer nights music festival. Cause it was going to be an amazing one. It was, we were going to be celebrating our 50th anniversary and we had some wonderful plans and you know, it's uh, one of my favorite authors ever, Lucy Maud Montgomery, who wrote the Anne of Green Gables series. She had this quote, which I just, I love. She's cakes have a horrible habit of turning out bad just when you especially want them to be good. <laughs> and that's how I felt about this season. I really, really wanted it to be amazing. But you know what? It, it challenges you as, you know, as an organization to figure out ways that you can still connect and still engage a community. And that's what all arts organizations are doing right now. Right. It, it is amazing how well everybody's doing and keeping us all engaged. Is there a possibility for, for the orchestra of doing something outside? Um, you know, I think outside venues are something to explore. That's something I think that if it were possible for us to gather together in some semblance of a, an audience space, it would have to be outside. And I think that we've had success with our community concerts in the past of doing those kinds of things. So I do look at kind of a future trajectory of us coming back kind of in that fashion, like starting with the outdoor where people bring their own chairs and they bring their own things, you know? And so I think that that's probably how we'll phase back into getting back into the concert hall together. Yeah. Do you want to start with talking about a little bit about what events are coming up and then we'll get into the bad boys or should we do the bad boys first? Um, let's talk about the events and then we'll end with fun. Okay. All right. What have you got coming up? Which is also fun, of course. <laughs> so, well, we decided because we can't bring the Hot Summer Nights Festival that we planned to people, we would look back and, and Maestro Kirk's been doing the lion's share of this looking back through the last about decade. Uh, we had a partnership with Mediacom where they've been coming and recording the Hot Summer Nights music festivals, the concerts. And so we have this lovely treasure trove um, in the vaults of Mosey of these past performances. So Maestro Kirk has been going through and kind of handpicking his favorite favorite performances. And we're going to edit those together into about 15 different concerts, which give you kind of the overall offering of a typical Hot Summer Nights festival. So you're going to get your masterworks performances. You're going to get the more popular uh, pops concerts, chamber recitals, uh, family and community concerts, which are a little more accessible to younger ages. So you're really going to get a nice overview of what we bring to the community. And we're going to be putting those free online on YouTube so that people can, can stream those right onto their smart TV and sit on the couch and enjoy a night with the Missouri Symphony Orchestra, our professional musicians. So uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think that um, people will really enjoy this. I'm really excited. I found out yesterday that it's going to be streamed into Lenore and some other uh, retirement communities. So a lot of people that are really craving this kind of entertainment right now are, are going to have it delivered right to them. So that just makes me, it fills my heart. <laughs> it makes <laughs> me very, very happy to know that we're doing something to ease the stress and anxiety of this this time. So that's Hot Summer Nights Greatest Hits. That's what we're calling it. So it's going to take place at the same time uh, that the, the live Hot Summer Nights Music Festival is going to take place. So June 11th through July 11th, we'll have a, a season kind of posted so you'll know what concerts are coming up when. Uh, we're going to have a virtual sneak peek with Maestro Kirk, and he's going to tell us a little bit more about the programming and, and what surprises we can look forward to. And so he's going to tell us in that in one of our Coffee with the Conductors. This is one of our new virtual 
social hours that Mosey is offering to connect with our community. So you literally get to go into via Zoom, the conductor's living room and sit and chat and have a cup of coffee. And it, it, it's it's quite lovely. The last time, you know, Maria, uh, Kirk's wife popped in, the kids popped in, and we all showed off our coffee mugs. And, <laughs> and, uh, and then we also have the Mosey mixers, which Trent Rash, the executive director of Mosey and myself, we do. Uh, it's kind of a, a way to make some of the composers of yesteryear uh, more relevant and show people that, you know, yes, these are music icons, but they were also flawed humans, just like you and me. And they had some pretty interesting stories as well. <laughs> so <laughs> we have a Mosey Mixer tonight, as a matter of fact. So uh, people can tune in. It's at 530. You can go to our Facebook page. There's an event there. The Zoom link is right there in the event. So just click it and pop in. Uh, we won't judge you if you pop in and hate us and pop right back out. That's not a that's not a problem. You know, people do that. No, <laughs> but it'll be fun tonight. We're going to be uh, focusing on the bad boys of classical music. We're going to be sharing some of the, the composers who were really the rock stars of their time. So it, it should be a fun Mosey mixer tonight at 5.30. Which is a perfect segue into a segment we're calling the bad boys of <laughs> classical music. Yeah, so I wanted to uh, to, to test you, um, Diana, okay. because, I, because I just think it would be funny because there are a lot of similarities between some of these, these bad boys and the bad boys that maybe you and I grew up adoring or loving or putting up on our, our bedroom walls. So, <laughs> so I have here an assortment of quotations. Um, some are from Mozart. Now, Mozart was arguably, you know, he was the original rock star, right? I mean, he was an international <laughs> celebrity, spent his entire life on the road. And I mean, he invented the out of control child superstar with controlling stage parents persona, like <laughs> way before it was trending. And Beethoven, another bad boy, another rock star. He had a reputation for trashing his apartment. Uh, he got mistaken for being a vagrant out on the street. These guys lived the rock and roll lifestyle. <laughs> And then, of course, there's Mick Jagger. <clears throat> so, <laughs> so I have quotes from Mozart, Beethoven, and Mick Jagger. So your job, <laughs> after I read the quote, is to tell me, is it Mozart, Beethoven, or Jagger? So that's your job. Are you ready? Okay, I'm ready. Go okay. For it. <laughs> okay, first quote. <clears throat> I have nasty habits. I take tea at three. Mm. <laughs> Beethoven. No, it's Mick Jagger. <laughs> that was a tricky one. <laughs> okay, here's another one. So um, if I had to marry all those with whom I have jested, I should have 200 wives at least. Mm. Well, Mick Jagger's definitely jested with more than 200 <laughs> women. So <laughs> I'm ruling him out at this point. I would say, you know, the, the person we think of as being the most amorous is mm. probably Mozart. So I'm going to go Mozart. Ding, ding, ding. Good job. <laughs> yeah, Mozart was totally a player. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I guess he was a pretty devoted husband too. Like, he was really into his wife. So that's that's really awesome for Mozart. Good for him. Okay, good job, Mozart. <laughs> okay, so uh, next. Um, <clears throat> hide your secret even from the closest friend learn to be silent well that doesn't really sound like Beethoven he's kind of always very <laughs> philosophical mm. um, hide your secrets well I'm going to go Mozart again 
It's actually Beethoven. I thought oh. you were going to get that because, you know, he is very philosophical. And that's kind of a, you know, philosophical little quote there. So okay, he's, he's not quite as cheeky <laughs> as Jagger and Mozart. Okay, um, here's another one. Uh, let's see. A world with no music would be a very different world. So music does change the world by virtue of all the music in it. Cumulative music of every kind, from banging a drum to playing a flute or recording symphonies. All those things change the whole way we live. Now, I'm going to guess somewhere between Beethoven and Jagger on that one. I think because it's talking about banging a drum, it sounds a little more contemporary, so I'm going to go Jagger. You're right. Good job. I totally tried to throw you off on that, but you were not fooled. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) Okay, final one. Okay, last one. All dancing is a replacement for sex. (laughs) That could be Mozart or or Jagger. Mm. I'm going to go Mozart. It's Mick Jagger. <laughs> but you know what? I bet Mozart said something very similar, if not the exact same words. <laughs> so as you can see, they're all a lot alike. Rock stars all. So <laughs> You've definitely proved that point, that there isn't a difference between 21st century rock stars and the 17th and 18th century rock stars. <laughs> okay, well, um, that was fantastic. Thank you, Monica, as always. I always love finding out a little bit more about the <laughs> dusty old men who, in fact, are not dusty old men. <laughs> Absolutely not. Think of them as a fine wine. They only get better with age. <laughs> Let's check back in again next week and, uh, and see what else is new or old and noted in the world of classical music. <laughs> Thanks, Monica. Bye-bye. From the Missouri Symphony, there's only one floor down in the gorgeous Missouri Theatre Building to the Columbia Art League, home to so many years of my life and, as I would always proudly tell people, the first gallery walls upon which many local artists ever hang their work. Good morning, Kelsey. Good morning. So my first question to everybody today is how you are feeling about reopening your venue, in this case the Columbia Art League, at some point and what you feel that point might be yeah it's a little hard to know so um we have the advantage of having a larger space so even if we um do have a fair amount of people in there we probably still will be able to um be safe and and follow the recommendations however i think that just in terms of who our members are and again who our volunteers are and all that kind of stuff we don't need to be open right now. So I think we're going to stay closed for the remainder of May and then reopen in June. And we'll, our goal is to do our members show in the physical gallery. So we won't have it online necessarily. We'll have it in our physical space. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody is feeling an extra degree of tension right now that everything is opened up and everyone's like, let's just wait for two weeks and see what the result of this reopening is. But I mean, I think like you, most of the arts venues are opting to play very cautiously. Yeah. I mean, I think that we all know that art is essential for sure. I mean, none of us think that it isn't. Um, But I think that we have the advantage of being able to roll a little slower we can still do things online we love and appreciate everyone's support during this time and are so grateful to everyone who's reached out and helped us either with donations or time or sharing posts or whatever they're doing so I think yeah we have a little bit more leeway um, to be able to open a little bit later so at a practical level what does disinfecting a gallery and artworks look like (laughs) basically obviously doors and countertops and things like that 
in terms of the actual art on the walls, I mean, I think that is fine. Again, you know, don't touch the art folks. Like that's one of our main main reasons and goals here. Um, so I think that, I think in terms of that, it's, it's probably fine. Where for us, it gets a little harder is um, classes and how that could work or not. And some of our actual physical objects that we're selling in terms of earrings or pottery, that kind of stuff. So I think we'll just have to be extra cautious and maybe not have other people hold things. Maybe we'll have to do all the holding and then we can wash our hands more easily. And I don't know exactly yet. I have another couple of weeks to figure it out, I guess. But <laughs> yeah, I was thinking it through last night, you know, having been in your shoes and, you know, people bring their artworks in and then you take the artworks and, you know, you're handling them. You don't know what their home situation is. You don't know what they've touched before they come in. So suddenly, you know, you and the volunteers are open to a lot of potential vectors from yes. all of the artwork that comes in. Um, and artwork isn't always the most pristine. I remember one gallery owner in Chicago asking me if I'd ever found bed bugs in any artwork because a professional gallery in Chicago, he had found bed bugs in artwork. Oh dear. No. Okay. Yeah. Our goal, no bed bug art would be great. Yeah. I, I have found <laughs> spiders in artwork behind the glass. <laughs> oh dear. Oh dear. <laughs> anyway. Uh, <laughs> Moving on. So tell me a little bit about, we talked about it a bit last time you were on about the current virtual exhibit, but it was before it had really all opened called the Visual Mixtape. And I had such a good time looking through it online and trying to guess people's influences without cheating and peeking at the information card. Some you could make a good guess about. Phil Peters, pair of works are really odes to Edward Hopper. I got that uh -huh. one. Yeah. Um, the black and white nature photography, I figured that must be Ansel Adams and sure enough mm -hmm. it was. But there were lots of aha moments for me too where I saw an artist's work that I, I know well, I know the artist's work well, and I'd never thought about who their inspiration was. And in particular, I'm thinking about Pam Gaynor's beautiful oil okay. paintings inspired by the English romantic painter, yes. J.M.W. Turner. And I had never noticed that. And now I'm thinking, how did you not notice that? Right, right. <laughs> so. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I thought what was interesting was that sort of, you know, there are some that are, um, you know, Kay Foley's is, is so beautiful and so lively. And it's just like Matisse, you know, you just look at it and you want to do the little dance, you know, but um, the, some of the others, it's really like the color, you know, or Beverly Bourdieu's her red on red, which is so it's Rothko, but it's not a painting, you know, it's a fiber piece. So just that, but that color and that vibration of red really gets you, you know? So I think, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see. I just love something that makes you think and work a little bit harder, you know? So that, that extra added piece of the show, I think is, makes it even more stimulating, you know, and kind of makes you want to dive into those other artists. Like you're right with Pam's work and, and Turner, it made me want to revisit his work and see that cloudy, like ethereal, smoky, beautiful, I don't know, just fog that kind of goes over everything. You know, it was awesome. Did you play the same guessing game when the works were being submitted to you? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, somebody was like, well, I got that one wrong. You know, <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Okay. I can see that. So yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty cool. And, you know, some people really wanted to submit their work, but they, I'm thinking of Ira Papik in particular, he makes woodwork. And so he had a, an artwork that he really wanted to show, but to do it online just for him was not the best way. So I'm sure we'll see it later, but he is in love with this particular artist, which now of course I'm blanking on his name, 
And so he worked so hard to like make his piece in reference to and in reverence of this person. And I just, you know, I just love that the people that really took it to heart and, and really worked out how they could do that. So when his piece is in a different show, I'll make sure to point it out. I mean, and you had said, I think in the, in the brief for the show, it isn't supposed to be a copy of that person's work. It's just, Mm -hmm. you know, how does that person's oeuvre of work affect or influence how you produce your artwork. And so, you know, some some seemed a little more obvious than others, but yeah, that the Beverly Borderan one I thought was amazing. I really loved Martha Daniels' uh, Ode to William Morris that was really beautiful. A um, couple of Monets, it was just fascinating. And then I thought it was interesting too that some artists chose to point their influence at other local artists. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I know. I think that's great. I know. But yeah, um, Dennis Murphy's Ode to Lampo Leong was really funny. I mean, Dennis's work is so funny all the time. And so I, I just love that piece. And then there were odes to bluegrass music or to uh-huh. the Hubble telescope. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Which, you know, it's, it's, I mean, we kind of forget sometimes that art, you know, is everything, right? So if you're a visual artist, you are also influenced by music and um, especially for this show, I called it the visual mixtape, right? Like the referencing music as well. So, but those things, those, those sort of visual or sound experiences that you've had definitely can influence your, your visual art as well. So tell us a little bit about the patrons party, which had obviously all got canceled as it was just as the coronavirus broke out, but you are resurrecting that. How is that going to work? So fortunately for us, we left all of that work hung up in the gallery space. So it's still there. It's sort of, you know, forlornly looking out the windows at people like, hello. But we are going to basically have one-on-one Zoom meetings or FaceTime appointments with me for two days. And I will go around the gallery and I will pick the work off the wall that the people choose. So um, when you buy a ticket, it's $150. This is a Columbia Art League fundraiser. And it was planned that way from the get-go. So when you buy a ticket, all the money will go to our operations budget. Our artists donated artworks, which is amazing and it's glorious. And so when you buy a ticket, you get to have one of the artworks. We're going to randomly generate a number for every person who buys a ticket. So even if you bought a ticket, you might not get your first choice, but we have so many to choose from and they're all quite wonderful. So my advice is to, if you're interested in doing this and you haven't bought a ticket yet, is to look at the artwork make a list of the art you are interested in, like 10 artworks. And then um, when your appointment is made, that is the number that you've been drawn, you know, the number of which you've been drawn. And then you get to pick one of the works that you love. So everybody will end up with an artwork, which is pretty cool. So how many artworks are there altogether? There are 105. And will you sell 105 tickets or? <laughs> we will, yes. <laughs> We will. I mean, I hope people will. We have about um, 40 tickets left. And yeah, we sold a a bunch in the last couple of days once we started advertising it again. And have those people that have already bought tickets, have they already had the number generated? Or is it going to be like one day when you generate all the numbers? So the evening of the actual, when we were going to do a physical event, the numbers would have been like, when you come in, you would get the number. So you would be told what your number is. So, um, So this is kind of the same way. So just because you bought a ticket before doesn't mean that you had a number. So everybody, even the person who buys the very last ticket could be drawn first, which is kind of 
you know, it's the gambling aspect. That's the fun <laughs> of the event. It's the risk value, you know, factor in here. And is there a place on the website where we can see all the images of all the works? Yeah. So on our website under events, it will say patron party, which has all of the information about how it will work. And then there's also patron party artworks, which looks like you can buy them, but you can't actually buy them. They're just on there so that you can see all of them. And, and when someone picks one, then I'll mark it sold. So it's no longer on the website. So throughout the day, once you get your ticket, if you're if your time isn't until later in the afternoon on Saturday or maybe on Sunday, you still want to be checking the website to see which artworks are left so you can adjust your list and keep current with what's going on. And so. what is the day that we choose our artworks? So tickets will be taken down or you have to buy your ticket by May 14th. And the actual appointments with me will be on May 16th, which is a Saturday and May 17th, which is the Sunday following. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kelsey. Of course. Always exciting to see what's happening at the Columbia yes. Art League, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> we'll check back in with you in a couple of weeks and see how everything is going. All right. Sounds good. Thanks. Bye. Bye. And on we go once more. In my dream home vision, there is a large, round, bright room full of shelves of books. And within the room, there is a lovely wooden staircase, which takes you up to a kind of crescent moon reading level, upon which is a huge squishy armchair. I suspect this is a forever dream and not one that's going to get realised anytime soon. But the nearest thing to it in Colombia is Skylark Bookshop, which is where we're going to land next for a chat with its owner, Alex George. Good morning, Alex. I am wondering how you're feeling today, if you have a post-publication emotional hangover. Oh, a little bit, a little bit. Um, although I don't really have time for one, Diana, because uh, things haven't stopped. I mean, I was supposed to be beginning a two-week national book tour today, which I'm not doing. But, uh, they, ha you know, people are doing other things instead. And, um, and then I have other remote conversations on Friday uh, and, and Thursday as well. So there's still, there's still a lot to do. Uh, to say nothing of all of the the books that we're actually selling here and which need to be signed and packaged and lovingly sent on their way, so we're I, I'm I'm being kept out of mischief. So, given the circumstances, were you happy with how your big day went? Oh, absolutely! No, it was wonderful. It was um, you know not quite what anybody was expecting, but um, and there's always there's always a slight sense with these things that there, there is a bit of anticlimax because the books might be out, but if <laughs> normally authors can walk into a bookshop and see their books on the shelves. And of course, no authors uh, are able to do that at the moment. But still, there was enough going on. Uh, and, you know, I was also fortunate enough to spend a couple of hours in the afternoon driving around Columbia, delivering the book uh, to people who had pre-ordered it. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. And even though I didn't see them because we're practicing good social distancing protocols, uh, it was still nice to imagine that the book going into people's homes. So it, there, there, was a, there was a lot to be to be grateful for. How are you feeling as a as an organization, as a business about reopening? Obviously, the rules changed a little bit this week, this month in uh, mm. Missouri. When is right for you? Well, we don't know. Uh, we're not open at the moment, even though we uh, are allowed to be. We are talking every day with our staff and, you know, the, the safety of our staff and of our customers is, of course, of paramount importance. And we just simply don't feel ready yet to open. We don't think it's safe. We don't think the time is right. So we are taking it on a week by week basis. We are also on the hunt for more cleaning supplies and things, because in order to open, um, you know, we need to make sure that we have sufficient reserves of hand wash and, and all of those kinds of things and, and disinfectant so we can spray things down. Uh, and those things are still hard to come by. So 
Right now we're closed. We are still doing curbside pickup. And of course, we're mailing and delivering as well. You know, we're, we're going to be super cautious about it. And uh, I'm not going to apologize to anyone for um, doing our best to, to look after uh, our staff and our customers. Um, so we don't know, but, but we're, we, you know, we, I mean, we're desperate to open, of course. We're, you know, we miss our customers terribly, but we're, we're, we're going to wait until the time is right. I mean, how, how do you, I asked Kelsey at this at the Art League, how, how do you disinfect a gallery? But how do you disinfect a bookshop where everything is made of paper? I mean, you can't, you can't kind of do a big spray down of all the bookshelves. But you do have a lot of surfaces that get fomites on them or fomite surfaces, you know. <laughs> there are lots and lots of surfaces that need to be cleaned on a regular basis. You know, there's all of that lovely wood that we have. Uh, and we, we actually, and this is sort of antithetical to everything that we do, but we, we are trying to touch the books as little as possible and you but we're cleaning all surfaces we're cleaning telephones everybody has their they come in in the morning they're ascribed their own telephone and their own pen so people don't swap and of course and everyone is washing their hands on a regular basis and and just we're just we're doing everything that we need to do and uh mm. and um, the door the door is actually locked so people can't inadvertently wander in um, and when we go outside to deliver to to cars, you know, we ask them to open the trunk and we sort of run around and pop it in. And of course, we're all wearing masks as well. So it's it's a it's a strange looking world that we're inhabiting at the moment. But we're just, you know, we're, we're doing our best and biding our time and um, hopefully it won't last too long. Well, I think you are earning a lot of respect from a lot of people for keeping everybody safe. So thank you for doing that. Mm. Going back to mm. writing, I loved um, one of the insights that you had in your social media post yesterday about, you know, it's all really well and good. It's all fun launching a book and, you know, being the big hero of the hour. But it is such a different world from the world of the actual act of writing and, and that your first love is telling stories and writing and, and you're ready now to get back to your first love. How urgently are you feeling the pull now of your next book? <laughs> Oh, it's it's pretty urgent. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm 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 very anxious to do that. It's hard. I mean, there, there there's just so much going on at the minute, and you know, you need time, but you also need space in your head to write. And with when a book is being published, it's just hard to do. There's a lot of noise and chatter and things that you need to attend to. Whether it's just you know writing emails or responding to emails of congratulations uh you know the people have been so kind and so generous with their messages and and it's it's overwhelming and wonderful but you know you also you don't want to ignore these lovely people so you have to you know just engage and so that's it's all it's all great but it, it takes up time and space in my head so I, I'm not going to be there for a little while yet but I, I have written the first chapter of the new book and I know what it's about and I'm um yeah, I'm anxious to to, to get back into the uh, proverbial saddle and begin again. And it is, you're right. I mean, you know, pub publishing a book is a very, very different experience to writing one. And uh, authors are expected to do this, like vertiginous 180. And, and, you know, from being sort of introverts who rarely talk to people, we're, we're supposed to suddenly transform into these extraordinarily effervescent, uh, articulate <laughs> extroverts. We're like, yeah, it's not really us, but okay, well, we'll do our best. And some people thrive on it. I, I, I enjoy it enormously, but um, it's quite tiring for me personally. I'm a, a, there's a wonderful book actually called Quiet by Susan Cain, uh, which is all about introverts and the power of the introvert. And I read it and it was like, I felt so seen. It was like, I'm a textbook 
apparently a textbook introvert, even though, you know, on occasion I will go up and stand in front of a lot of people and talk and go on the radio and talk. And But it, it, it all, there is a cost to all of that. And so I enjoy it, but I sort of need to go and lie down <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> I, th- I always think that's true of a lot of artists that you see at art fairs too. They spend most of the year in their studio, in their workshop, making their art. They don't speak to anybody. It's a very solitary job. And then suddenly they're at an art festival with, you know, hundreds, thousands of people saying, tell me about your work. And and it's very yeah. difficult. I see that some people just aren't able to really engage. They kind of hide at the back of their booth and other people are more extroverts and out at the front of their booth. And that is such a dilemma for a lot of people, I think, in the in that art world, that a lot of introverts occupy that space. Yeah, I think it is. And I think there's also a degree of some people just, uh, and I'm sure this must be even more the case with artists than with writers, there must be some people who just go, well, why do I need to talk about it? Can't you just look at it? Uh, you know, and similarly with the book, it's like, well, can you not just read the book? <laughs> Which is not a very generous uh, way of thinking about things, but I do, I do sympathise with it. I mean, I'm always happy to talk about talk about my books, but I do understand that some people just sort of uh, can maybe feel otherwise. Well, what book are we going to talk about today? It's not your book. We talked about that one last week. Um, who are we it's talking about this week? Book. Yeah, I'm sure everyone, everyone will be relieved for a break. So two books, um, actually, and one one is called Normal People by Sally Rooney, uh, which I read a couple of months ago, and it's set in Ireland, and it's a story of a young romance, and it's two kids who first get to know each other at school and then they sort of go through you go through the next probably five or ten years of their lives they go to university and as is often the case with these things the sort of the the power dynamics of the relationship change in terms of who wants who and who's in charge and who's the more powerful um it's been celebrated far and wide because sally rooney who's irritatingly young is a wonderful writer she just has a wonderfully uh, precise way of writing and she captures these emotions with sort of real acuity and precision and it was hugely enjoyable I mean it did sort of make me feel about like a pimply 17 year old again which not you know I'm 50 now it felt a little uncomfortable to be honest but but I think that speaks as testament to the power of what she does uh, she really is is an extraordinarily good writer. And this is actually her second novel. Her first book is called Conversations with Friends, which I have not read, but uh, I'm, I plan to soon. And the reason why I wanted to talk about this is that if people are sort of, if it's ringing a bell with people, it's because Hulu has just released an adaptation of this novel on its channel. Uh, and so it's everywhere at the minute, everywhere you, you see online ads for online streaming services um normal people is is everywhere and i have not seen the hulu program i sort of probably won't because you know i'm one of those people who think that the book's usually better than the (laughs) film but it's a great book Uh, and if you enjoyed the hulu show then i would certainly suggest trying the book as well okay in the short time we have left what is the other book so the other book is called good boy my life in seven dogs which is a memoir by jennifer finney boylan who uh, is a wonderful writer. She lives in Maine and she is a dog person, as am I. And I actually heard her speak in Baltimore in January this year. It's a very funny book. 
and it tells the story of her life and seven dogs. So seven dogs that she has owned over the course of her life at various points in her life. It's extremely funny, but it's also very, very touching as well. And um, yeah, I just, I enjoyed it enormously. And Jennifer Finney Boylan is a, a, a trans woman and a lot of what she talks about is is that experience and making that change. And so there's a lot of that in there, which was fascinating to me. And she writes with enormous empathy and understanding and warmth. And it's just, it's a wonderful book. It's a wonderful book for anybody. But if you love dogs, it's an absolute slam dunk. Okay. I love dogs. I'll come down and look at that one. <laughs> There you go. Thank you so much, Alex. We'll check back in with you next week for more news from the world of books. Thanks, Diana. And from Skylock Bookshop, it is on to our last stop today, Talking Horse Productions, a place where I always leave more full than when I arrived. Kathleen Johnson and Adam Bretsky, it is always such a pleasure to get to hang with you every week for a few minutes. Talking Horse Productions and the Stable Boys have delivered so much joy and laughter and thoughtful drama into my life. So thank you on this day after or a few days after Giving Tuesday. I do really appreciate everything that you do. Well, thanks so much. That That's really nice to hear, especially in this kind of hard time where we're investigating our place in the world and you know, really reliant on our patrons and supporters. So like so many of us, I would love nothing more than to be able to walk through the door of Talking Horse Theatre, go nip over to Dogmaster and get a little adult beverage and then wait for the lights to dim and a theatrical journey to start. But, you know, luckily we have local leaders and responsible venue owners who are being pretty circumspect uh, right now about when they reopen. And I was wondering what discussions you had had as a talking horse board about when will be appropriate when the quote unquote new normal kicks in. Well, it really did, it's really determined by what that new normal is. As you mentioned, the city has passed a number of ordinances right now as to what venues can be open and what businesses can be open. And as of this time, uh, theaters, movie theaters, and concert venues, we are not ready to open just due to how we have everybody placed in. And so we're waiting a little bit for the, the city's guidelines there. But we also want to make sure that when the time is right and people are able to come to the theater, that we're taking good care of them, that they can enjoy whatever product we put forward without having to worry about their health. So it's an ongoing discussion every day. As of current, we are moving forward with our plans for our next season show, which is Seminar, hopefully going to open in July. And then auditions for that are actually this month on the 19th. What's nice about that is because of the small cast, it's a cast of five put together with a production team would be less than 10. So we still fit under that guideline of uh, not exceeding 10. Kathleen, what about the Stable Boys? What are you thinking? Yeah, so we have had a lot of conversations as Stable Boys. Just I think everyone feels pretty confident that we're not ready to host a show and invite a whole audience in. Obviously, at this point, and certainly not while Talking Horse is still trying to figure all of that out. We are still rehearsing via Zoom. We've talked about, we actually had a conversation just at our last rehearsal about whether or not we want to start moving our rehearsals in person or not, because as a group, we still kind of qualify for the under 10 people in a gathering. But I think at this point, we're all 
also people who are taking in the news and looking at science and saying, you know, it's great that we're tiptoeing as a community back into being open, but let's continue doing this if we can while being distanced from each other so that we can increase those skills and keep working with each other while helping to keep the wider community safe. If it's not necessary for us to be together right now, then we're going to keep doing what we're doing. Uh, that being said, we did talk about bringing another show out because it was really fun for us. It was a great exercise in terms of working on our skills, and it seemed like it got really good feedback, uh, and people enjoyed it, um, and it did do some good financially for the theater. So we have planned and just announced our next show, which is going to be next Thursday. Exciting. And it's another Zoom, check into Zoom, exactly the same kind of format. Uh, yeah, so it is technically the same format um, in terms of Zoom. So you'll get on there. It is a free show. We just ask that if you can, you consider donating to the theater. But the format of the show itself, like artistically, is a little bit different. You know, one thing we love to do when we're in person performing is that long form kind of full length movie. And I think given everyone's attention span when looking at a computer these days is shorter, understandably. We thought it might be hard for us to follow a full-length improvised movie online without being there. It might be hard for the audience, but we really were missing some of that uh, genre work and that play. So we are bringing fake flicks, sort of the next binge-worthy shows that don't exist. So we're going to come to the audience actually with various genres and ask for suggestions during the show for people to type into the chat of different titles of TV shows or movies that they haven't already seen that don't actually exist. Uh, and we will bring you some of the exciting, interesting, captivating scenes that are in each of those TV shows, since we're all binging on things online anyway, right? I would like Geriatric Bachelor, but in fact, I think they are... <laughs> I think they are doing a season of like, if you are an older person, I, I don't know what they mean exactly by older person, but yeah, geriatric bachelor. I'm going to just put that out I think, there. I think 32. I think 32 on The Bachelor now is 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 considered old. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So today we are going to talk about improv again. Uh, what have you got for us today, Adam? Uh, actually, Kathleen has uh, planned out this lesson, so I'm going to hand it over to her. Okay, Kathleen, take it away. So kind of along the same lines of how we started our conversation today, you know, in the world right now, people, especially business owners, artists, and those who intersect the two, those who are running arts businesses and nonprofits, making those choices when there aren't always like clear set to do this, don't do this situations require justification. You Sometimes you have to think through and justify choices or different options to yourself. You have to work with those as a board um, and as a community. And then you have to justify the choices that you're making to the rest of the world, to your patrons, to your supporters. Not because people inherently would disagree, but the idea of justification in life is assuring that we're not making arbitrary choices, that there are reasons behind the choices that we make. And the exact same thing is true in improv. Really good improv, whether it's short form or long form, finds justification for different circumstances. And so that's what we're going to play with today, a little bit of justification. It sounds very timely. 
Yeah, I think so. Well, that's the beauty of improv, right? It can change and adapt to your needs in the situation. And I think it also speaks to the idea, you know, that improv, practicing improv can prepare you in ways that you're not totally always clear on for what you do in real life that is not performance related. Okay. Um, so, okay. So for our justification game today, usually we I find it best, you know, it's like, it's like creating new muscle memory. A lot of improv is you got to train your body to react and your mind to react in ways that you're not always used to doing. And so in a lot of improv, we like to push things to the extreme. Uh, so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to do absurd justifications. So what I love about this game is you can do this in a small group. You could do it with one or two people. You could actually play this game on your own if you wanted, or you could have a group of 10, exactly 10 or less than 10 gathered in one space playing this game. So here's how it's going to go. We're going to have, let's have Adam start. And Adam is going to make an absurd statement He's going to kind of stake his claim, but it's it's going to be an absurd one. So, Adam, can you make a, a pretty intense but absurd claim? Yeah, you know, I've been hearing a lot about the murder hornets and uh, what great pets they make. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. So, Adam's, Adam's absurd statement is that murder hornets make great pets. And our job, Diana, is now to come up with a reason to justify his statement. So... You're going to go first, and you're going to give a reason why murder hornets do, in fact, make great pets. Well, I think we are all looking for things to do at this time. And, and what can be more fun than watching murder hornets decapitate a whole hive of bees? Excellent. Excellent. Very entertaining. Um, I'm going to give a different reason uh, why. So I think that murder hornets make a great pet because... There's that internal desire within us to uh, kind of always inch closer to our own death. And so why not have this pet who fulfills those deep Freudian psychological needs of inching closer and closer to our own doom? And then Adam now will come up with the final, a final reason, a justification that's different from both of ours as to why murder hornets make great pets. Well, the real reason that they make great pets is because people love exotic animals. If you uh, were watching Netflix recently, you saw what uh, crazy characters own these wild animals. And so I'm already predicting the next big Netflix documentary. It's going to be Hornet King. And that's why I need me some murder hornets. <laughs> that's a great game. Excellent. Yeah. And, and and then in theory, we would go around the circle, you know, so the next person could say something and, and so on and so forth. And if you're playing it by yourself, you just have to be absurd with yourself. Yeah. How many justifications can you can you come up with? Uh, the real the real benefit to this, there are tons of short form games that can help you like practice it and be entered themselves. Uh, you know, Adam, can you think of any off the top of your head that you guys do to practice justification? Yeah, one of my favorite is a little game called Robot, where you each create a character, and then you say something that you are doing in the space that you're doing it in, and then each person has to come up with an objective that they have. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's awesome. We might have to save that yeah. for another week. <laughs> <laughs> Robots. 
I do like justification. I keep thinking that all of these things that you're teaching me when I when I go on a dog walk with Tom, I wish just play them when we're on our dog walk. But yeah, I liked last week's, you know, answering the question with a question that I failed at so horribly. But I mean, that's a great <laughs> dog walk conversation. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much. I always enjoy chatting with you both. And um, I look forward to seeing more online stable boys and I'm being back in the theater at a point when it feels right to everybody. Thank you, Adam. Thanks so much. And thank you, Kathleen. Yeah, thanks. It's always fun. And that is it for today's show. Thank you so much for staying at home and for listening. I'll be back next week with more ideas and happenings that can help us stay artfully nourished until we can all be together again. Stay safe and stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.